Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bobby Madley's an awful referee. It is Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Podcast. From free today, it's me, Adam Bullwood. It's Nico Morales. Oh, not last on the introductions yeah, today. You know, I thought, I thought <laughs> I'd switch up. Uh, Chris Hennage is here as well. Chris, how are you doing? Lovely to come in last. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We are here to talk about all the wonderful football from this weekend. Well, three of the biggest talking points at the very least. We do unfortunately have to talk about the FA Cup, Spurs, bottle jobs again, getting knocked out by Manchester United, Chelsea as well, progressing to the final against Southampton. We're also going to be previewing the Champions League. There's a small matter of Real Madrid against Bayern Munich and Liverpool against Roma. And finally, we do have to talk about Arsene Wenger. It was confirmed on Friday he is leaving Arsenal at the end of the season, so plenty to dig in there. But let's start with the FA Cup. The biggest game, uh, the biggest story, I think it's fair to say, Chris uh, Spurs out in the semi-finals again. The eighth successive FA Cup semi-final they've been knocked out of. Um, Spurs are massive bottle jobs and they'll never win anything. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, that's that's the thing you jump to. I th- personally, it's un- it's unfair because a lot of those um, semi-finals occurred years ago, some even in the 90s. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think... They're not, they're not directly related, I think it's fair to say. The more telling thing to me was just kind of listening to... Um, Pochettino speak with just a little bit of ambiguity about the future as it relates to him. Um, the mention of whether it's him, whether it's with him or without him. I think you can certainly say if if a manager, you know, drops something once, then yeah, okay, it might be a mistake, especially when a manager is not talking in um, their native language. But I think he made a point to mention it on a few different TV interviews in his press conference afterwards. That to me just makes me think that not that Spurs fans should necessarily be worrying, but just maybe that that thought is entering his head that you know there's this part of him has to to think about his own future as well. There was a hint of doubt there. I think it's fair. To I, say I, think, a I think they, they should. I think they should be saying that because I I did watch the interview as well, and then I saw the point that 
that Rory Smith made on on his Twitter and Chris made as well. There, you know, I think he and Rory said this as well. He has made a point to say that you know it, it is him and his philosophy and these sort of things in the past and talking about sort of the unity and that's really Pochettino's message, right? In in the past and that extends to his philosophy and how he treats players and you know we'll talk about Toby Alderweireld in a minute, I'm sure, but hmm. you know he did say that a few times that whether it's with me or somebody else that's kind of the the, the daring things and sometimes i think journalists can take too much evidence out of a sentence but in this case i don't, I don't know what do you think adam um, i was gonna say let's take a step backwards for a second and, and <laughs> let's talk less about the context of the game but the, the game itself such i mentioned you mentioned toby alderweireld there do you think Pochino got this game wrong Nico not only from a team selection point of view I mean the the absence of Hugo Lloris with Pochettino sticking with Michel Vorm who, who's been playing in the cup games for Spurs this season as well as the absence of Toby Alderweireld from the back line we all know the contract saga that's dragging on with the uh, with the Belgian Spurs this season do you think that combined with his tactical approach did that did that cost Spurs this game for you on the pitch for me, it did not. I think even with it's tough when it comes to Yoris, and I'll get on that onto that in a second. But I think when in the case of Alderweireld, the the thing that we kind of talked about in the podcast last week is the biggest thing, the biggest difference, at least for me, between him and and Sanchez, who is for all accounts his his supposed replacement, um, is the long range passing and and some of those things. And I think it was present in this game as we saw from the opening goal but defensively I don't think it necessarily changes I, I just think that overall the the approach is something that Mourinho was looking to exploit anyways and I, I'm not going to say this was an, an inevitable result but I think regardless of what happens Mourinho is going to look to negate or looking to concede possession he's not going to be the one to attack you he's going to make sure that you are the one um that kind of messes up and tries to expose that mistake and i think it's easy for people to say you know oh pochettino got this one wrong again and he should have done this and he should have done that there are many an opponent including guardiola who have gone up against Mourinho and done you know have lost against that because he has the ability to be the team out of possession, even though he is the manager of Manchester United or he is the manager of Chelsea. So I think in this case, it wasn't necessarily his fault. I think in the case of the goalkeeper, um, it was interesting to me when I was watching some of the Manchester City celebrations of their league title. Um, there have been reports of him and or Pep Guardiola, I mean, and Claudio Bravo not necessarily getting along this season. And I think at times from the outside, it can be easy for us to say or for other journalists to say like, it's easy. Why don't you just play your best goalkeeper in this very important game in the season? But I think you, if you think about the the, the position that those people are in, in, in this case the manager, Mauricio Pochettino, has to be in in, in, their, in order to keep a good relationship between a player and a person that he has to use as part of his squad. I think when you make these promises and the promises that we know about in the professional game are usually, okay, I have one league goalkeeper, I have one cup goalkeeper, that's what I'm going to honor in these situations. In order for him to keep that long-range relationship viable, in order to you know not have a falling out and have his have him perform to the best of his ability, he has to be able to trust to trust Michelle Vorm in these situations. So, and even then, the the tactical advantage that Spurs look to have by playing Vorm in these situations is a goalkeeper that is supposedly better with his feet. 
I don't see a massive difference necessarily between him and Diego Ruiz. But I think even then, you know, what what Manchester United did exploit was that inability. And unless Spurs have a, a Claudio Bravo or better yet, an Aderson in goal, I think the same the same uh, result occurs if if Hugo Ruiz uh, is in goal. So. I think that's sort of my opinion. Yeah, maybe see him but sell I, I us, uh, be... Claudio Bravo this summer. You never know. <laughs> you guys want him? <laughs> well, like yeah, we'll see. Maybe two million. We'll give him that. Yeah. The thing is, of course, uh, losing another semi-final, though, Chris, as we sort of said there, it brings up these accusations. Spurs are bold job. Spurs are never going to win anything. Blah blah blah. I was speaking earlier in the season about how it would be fantastic to win the FA Cup. I think it's a tangible. Marker of the progress made under Mauricio Pochettino. It's a trophy that Spurs fans have an investment in and have an attachment to. And despite sort of Pochettino's comments before the game, sort of downplaying that significance and talking about how the FA Cup, like the League Cup, doesn't really change or transform the mentality of a club and their fortunes, like the Premier League and Champions League, I think to Spurs fans it is an important trophy. And this represented a real opportunity to bring silverware to the club for the first time in 10 years. And I think to to have something concrete, as I say, to say, look, trophies are there. Um, this squad is capable of winning them. They're capable of sort of taking these opportunities because, you know, not only this game now, but again against Juventus in that second leg, going up. They were one new up in that game as well, taking the lead in those games and then unfortunately losing and losing control of the game in a sense. Can I ask you something there, though, Adam? Sure, go on. Uh, you, you're talking about there about the trophies and, and the FA Cup, and I, and I like the the sentiment, and mm. I think it's uh, it's one that a lot of Spurs fans have. But at the same time, I, I do think that given the fact that they do sort of come from similar schools of of thought in terms of Guardiola and Pochettino, I do sort of think that they have a similar mentality in this aspect. And we've talked on the past few podcasts, I think, about the efficacy or the you know, uh, strength of a certain style of play in mm. different competitions and maybe, you know, a Mourinho style or a Klopp style might be more conducive to a cup competition as opposed to where a possession-oriented style might be better for a league campaign. And yeah. I think it's in, it's in that sort of school of thought that to a certain extent, I believe the comments that Guardiola has been saying in terms of he believes that the Premier League and league titles are an amazing accomplishment, even though some people want to downplay them because of the resources that Manchester City have, because you have to be consistent across X amount of games. And I think Pochettino, in that sense, when he talks about these things, when he maybe downplays the importance that some Spurs fans may put on the FA Cup, he's on a similar train of thought because, for me, at least tactically, that is is what he is moving towards with Tottenham. He is making you guys... A, a much better team in possession. He's making you guys a much more consistent team with the ball, and he's moving Tottenham, especially since he's got there, on from a team that will take the occasional scout from the top six, will use that pressing dominant style to you know take a take a, a really possession dominant Manchester United or whatever team, and take those three points and transfer that to consistently beating the West Ham's, the Swansea's, the sorry, Chris, Newcastles of the world and doing that. And I think he I, does impart a very uh, sincere sense of value on, on that kind of thinking. I understand that. And I don't think you can deny the progress that has been made under Pochettino. And you see that in the league campaigns that we've had in recent seasons. You know, 
Spurs couldn't finish above Arsenal for essentially my entire lifetime. We're now going to finish above Arsenal two seasons in a row. We couldn't, let alone qualify for the Champions League. We've now potentially looking like we're going to do that three seasons in a row, which I think is a fantastic achievement. You know, we couldn't thrive in the Champions League this season. We've beaten Real Madrid. We beat Borussia Dortmund. We were equal to Juventus, but just fell short. You know, there were doubts about Spurs playing at Wembley, being away from White Hart Lane for the entire season. We've only lost two games there all season, and that was to Chelsea and Man City. So I think, you know, you can see that progress and understand the the, the lengths that Pochettino's brought this team in the league, etc. And I understand what you're saying in terms of what he's trying to transform this team into. I think the issue is that... Someone like City and, and, and that mentality that Guardiola's got that you, you're comparing to Pochettino's, City can realistically compete for the league. And I think Spurs is much harder and it's much harder for Spurs fans to see us winning the league in the future. I think, you know, the, uh, sadly, perhaps the, the biggest opportunity was there when Leicester won the league. I think, you know... Uh, Everyone fell short in that season, but that may have been the opportunity because Man City are going to be stronger than ever next season, as are Manchester United. Arsenal, as we'll come on to talk about later on, Wenger leaving. I think there's a huge opportunity there to to revolutionise that club and, and the only way is up, essentially, for Arsenal, unfortunately. Chelsea could be bringing in a new manager, which always seems to revitalise them. Uh, Liverpool, uh, one of the best sides in the league this season, again, are only going to improve next season, you'd imagine. So therefore, it's hard to see how Spurs are going to be able to compete with the wage budget they have, the wage spend that is essentially means they're overachieving I would argue they are punching above their weight so cup competitions like this the FA Cup I think not only do they satisfy the fans but they send a message to the players etc that you know trophies can be won at this club and it is that concrete marker that I speak of and it is that that sort of building block that brings that mentality it was interesting to hear Ashley Young speak after the game about the mentality that the Manchester United squad have and that togetherness and that resilience and that know-how in these sorts of games, in these sorts of situations, how they get over the line. And I know we we, we talk about Mourinho a lot and we, we tend to criticise him and his approach. And part of me doesn't want us to see it in this way because it sort of takes the romance out of football and I'd much rather have a, a team that plays as well as Spurs do and as satisfyingly as they do as opposed to Manchester United but if Manchester United for example do win the FA Cup this season that'll be the Europa League the League Cup and the FA Cup three trophies in two seasons under Mourinho whereas Spurs won't have won anything you know there's a very real possibility that Arsenal could win the the Europa League as well Chelsea might even win the FA Cup instead of Manchester United it just feels like it's a it's a real missed opportunity because it's a crossroads almost for this Spurs team I think you know, we've spoken many a time about how we've built a fantastic squad. Pochettino has completely revolutionised the club in many ways and transformed their mentality to one that can compete at the highest level. But I think now it's about taking that next step. And when, you know, you've got players like Toby Alderweireld potentially leaving, players like Moussa Dembele leaving this summer, I think it's important to, to send a signal. And this is a game which, yeah, it just feels like a huge missed opportunity. I mean, how do you see it, Chris? I mean... Like I say, the, the the progress under Pochettino is undeniable, but it does feel like that crossroads is coming up for Spurs where I don't think the big players, the huge marquee stars like Ali, like Kane, will be leaving this summer because, of course, we're moving into that new stadium. I think there is still that enthusiasm and that optimism around the club in the future. And, of course, the long-term future is secure in that sense. But 
do you know what I mean? It feels like it could come to a, a critical point in the next season or two where if Spurs don't prove that they can compete, that they can win silverware, there's going to be a difficult period and a difficult conversation for the club and the players and the fans. I do wonder if the departure of Arsene Wenger has made us look at the longevity of managerial careers in a, a different way because 22 years seems like a, an age now when really I think three or four years is is a healthy tenure these days. It's it's changed significantly. And I think that's what we're looking at with, with Pochettino is that the first sort of wave of improvement is potentially near crashing at this point. Not to give that a negative connotation so much as Toby Alderweireld, I think, is probably going to leave. This talks about whether Hugo Lloris is, is on sort of borrowed time um, as first-choice goalkeeper, so they're going to need at least two replacements there. Maybe Danny Rose is, is put in that conversation as well. I, I, I can't really claim to know for sure. Um, and and I think while Kane and, and Ali are fairly safe, there is definitely need for, for something um, to improve. You could, even if you wanted to be really um, thorough about it, talk about the the fact that Sojourier does not look like an uh, an adequate or even reliable um, right-back option for, for Spurs. I think what they actually need to learn, though, and perhaps what the next phase of the Pochettino master plan is, is game management. Because in in both instances, if you look at it, it's not, it's not a case that they don't have resilience. Because I think you look at the, the Bournemouth game where they went behind, they managed to come back and, and claw a victory from it. It's... The games like Juventus, where they're in a good position, they're in a fairly comfortable position, and then there's sort of one little rock and the whole boat goes with it. And that's the problem, is that they don't seem to understand almost how to keep things tight for, say, 10, 15 minutes. The the almost intangible nuances that we apply with someone like Jose Mourinho, that we give him so much credit for, and that when they don't present themselves, make him look like a very bad manager or like a very limited manager. Um, I think that's the problem is that, again, Spurs put themselves in a very good position against Manchester United with Ali's goal. It was then building from that. It was then taking the chances and being clinical. And then when you didn't, being comfortable and being able to survive the onslaught that would follow with Man United. I think you just need to look at the the Champions League for proof of that, because um, in the case of Real Madrid, um, in the case of arguably even Roma, it's been a case of teams of... It's been a case for teams, excuse me, struggling and fighting through the difficult period like Real Madrid did with Spurs, like they did with, with Juventus, and still emerging. It's it's not essentially having the foundations ruined during that difficult sort of 10, 15 minutes of a game. Feels like, you know, maybe we're lacking that experience in a sense. Maybe I think, you know, maybe that's what people speak to when they talk of Alderweireld and Lloris. And I mean, it was disappointing, Nico, that, you know, Dembele, of course, was at fault for that first goal. One of the more experienced players um, not being up to the level on the day. Yeah, a while ago, I talked, I wrote somewhere and I outlined this on my Twitter as well um, about Spurs and their success. And it was still when Pochettino was relatively new. And it was because... Uh, they had essentially, they were succeeding so much offensively because Dembele, despite being sort of a center midfield, defensive midfielder type of position, uh, was, had really, for for his position at least, had really good uh, dribbling percentage in terms of successful dribbling percentage. And what that equated to was that it was giving Spurs time and space 
in uh, central positions that for their attackers. And that was kind of the case in this game is that I, I, the reason I wrote about him so long ago is because Spurs were over-reliant on him as a player. They, re- they required Dembele to do too much. And in the next season, it was really going to hurt them either because he wasn't going to be able to do those things or he, you know, through injury or whatever, or teams were going to target that. They have since moved on from that stage of being uh, overly re- reliant on Dembele by having, you know, a passer like Alderweireld, by having other players in the midfield that are perfectly adequate at progressing the ball like Wanyama, like Ericsson, like Dele to some extent. Um, but in this game, that was something that Mourinho was able to hone in on and exploit from a Spurs perspective. And I think that was kind of the, the most difficult thing to accept for me was that Spurs don't have this issue. Don't, they don't have that issue anymore. They don't have to rely on Moussa Dembele to progress the ball because they have other ways to do it. And yet that seemed to be the game plan um, for Pochettino in this game in order to beat Manchester United, which is perfectly fine if he can do that. But the difficulty is you were essentially pitting Paul Pogba, who was much younger much stronger and much larger than Moussa Dembele in a midfield battle against a 30-year-old who isn't fully fit at any given point in time. Mm. So it was something that I think was, you know, he hung it out there to dry and it was unfortunately exposed. I think finally on this then, in a broader sense, uh, my final question would be, or final discussion point for you, Chris Paps, is where do Spurs go from here in the sense that some Spurs fans see this and see the situation as Spurs' fault. So it feels like, is it the club's fault? Is it the hierarchy's fault? Daniel Levy's, for example, the way he's running the club. Of course, I'm sure he would argue he's running the club in a sustainable way that secures a long-term future. You know, he can't bow to the demands of the likes of Toby Alderweireld because it throws the entire wage structure out of whack. Could they be operating differently? Many Spurs fans would like to see them do that and break that wage structure and, and try and operate in a way that the likes of, say, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea do to bring us to that level? Or are they simply operating in a market and environment where it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to compete and run a club in a financially sensible way and supersede the likes of City, United? You know, is it the club's fault or is it simply this is the market they're they're in? That's what's dictating the difficult circumstances they find themselves in. Um I think personally there is a decent argument to be made that for the, for Spurs, the model should be a little bit bo- little bit more akin to Liverpool's, which is not consistent chronic spending, but pieces that you believe can be part of a three, four, five year span. I think you look at Naby Keita, you look at, uh, at Van Dijk and um, Salah. That's a, probably what under two hundred million pounds worth of talent, give or take. But that's three players that will make up their spine. For probably the next five years, at least, you would you would hope as a Liverpool fan. Um, I think one of the beauties of Spurs is the fact that they haven't sought to to sort of um, financially dope their chances with with huge spending, and I really admire that. It obviously comes with uh, difficulties, such as keeping players happy financially, and you know maintaining parity on wages. All of these kind of difficult financial um, con- considerations. Yeah, but I think at the same time, them going out and spending, I don't think that's necessarily going to change things. I almost think that for them, they need to to stick the course with what they're doing. They need to develop a consistency when it comes to developing young players, giving them a chance, that kind of thing. Because I think that will serve them really well in the long run is being able to point to Christian Eriksen and Deli Ali and Song Hyun Min and say, these were players that we developed ourselves in-house. Some went on to 
to greater success um, away from the club. You know, you could go back and point to Luka Modric. Some found success with us. I think that's what they realistically have to do. And, and the stadium will be an important factor in maintaining that, I think, because I don't actually think they'll be able to go out and spend a ton of money. It's just perhaps about shopping maybe a tier above what they're usually doing and, and being better with it too, because that's the other thing is that the Sissoko, Soldado, to a, to a lesser extent, Lamella, because he's been really productive since um, Pochettino came in. Those players have been such a waste of money and, and drain on finances for that club. Yeah, it's kind of it's going to be interesting to see how they approach it in the summer. Where, as you say, Liverpool they've brought in Salah, Cater, Van Dijk, huge signings to spoil their team. It'd be interesting to see if you know with Sanchez having arrived last summer, whether they look to bolster the midfield with Dembele seemingly out of the picture. I think it's be interesting to see how they how they approach this now this summer going into that new stadium, but. Manchester United, anyway, through to the final. We didn't discuss them much, but we'll be discussing them ahead of that showpiece uh, in May. They'll be facing Chelsea in the final. Uh, they came through 2 0 against Southampton. Uh, Conte v Mourinho in the final, Nico. Yeah, and I think, as we talked about a little bit there, the Bambelli replacement possibly playing in this tie, Mario Lamina. Um, to an unfortunate effect under Marcuse. But uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't the most exciting game. I think Chelsea were always going to win this one, given how poorly Southampton have been over the past couple seasons, or not seasons, sorry, this season. Um, but it was weird because usually in these in this type of competition and with the type of manager Southampton have had, uh, they usually employ like a defensive pressing thing, which I think would have worked really well. It's almost like Everything that could possibly go wrong for Southampton has gone wrong because if anyone else, Claude Puel, Pellegrino, someone else had been in charge in this game, they would have enacted exactly that and possibly done better than they than they did in this game. But it was Mark Hughes and he did to be very open against a Chelsea team that is individually much better than them. Um, and ultimately, I think that's what happened. So it wasn't that difficult for Chelsea to break them down. And it was... Uh, it, it took away the only thing Southampton fans could possibly celebrate this season, which is an appearance in an FA Cup final. So thank you, Mark Hughes. Beautiful goal from Giroud, though. Messi-esque, is that fair to say? I've watched that about I don't a hundred times on loop. It wasn't clean enough to be yeah. Messi-esque. It was funny to see all the Southampton players fall over themselves, though. Uh, let's move on then to talk about the Champions League. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Semi-finals. Right, part two then. A Champions League preview of this week's huge 
semi-final clashes. Uh, first up, not Roma Liverpool. We're going to start with Real Madrid, Bayern Munich. This is the heavyweight clash. Nico, it really is. It's a it's a European classic, isn't it, Adam? Of course. I mean, the same fixture from last year, I believe. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's happened over the past couple of years now. It's. Um, I think um, a friend of mine who's a Bayern Munich fan a couple of years ago told me uh, that the that Real Madrid fans have for Bayern Munich since they like previous to them winning and going through, and I think when they won La Decima, um, the tenth trophy, when before they beat Bayern Munich to go through and win uh, the final that year, they had always called Bayern Munich uh, La Bestia Negra, which translates to the Black Beast. Um, not anything racial, but um, <laughs> but uh, they were just always like a really difficult team to get past for them. And obviously they've faced off quite a few times um, over the course of, you know, the, the history of the European Championship. So it, it's it's definitely a hotly contested tie and this one will be as well. I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts and we can kind of go back and forth and discuss this. But last year, obviously, Real Madrid were stuck with their 4-3-3 as they have for a couple of years now. They're really heavy on their use of the fullbacks, Carvajal and Marcelo. But a lot of that came down to Casimiro probably making his name out there for one of the finer defensive midfielders in the world, um, if not certainly uh, for Real Madrid. And he kind of squared off with Arturo Vidal of uh, Bayern Munich, and it was a really intense midfield battle there. It kind of came down to refereeing decisions, and Javi Martinez missed the second leg because he had yellow card accumulation. I mean, that duel might not even be in contention this year because Real Madrid have often gone with a 4-2-2-2 formation kind of mixing in the youngsters like Lucas Vasquez uh, and Marco Asensio with Cristiano Ronaldo and um, you know other, the Tony Cruz and, and Luka Modric Where, do you think that's a, that's a major thing and, and how do you see that kind of, kind of playing out and do you have any particularly strong thoughts about Casemiro's inclusion or exclusion? Yeah, I think Casemiro is a very interesting player. His development at Real Madrid has been fascinating. He's been there for five years, of course. He sort of arrived with little fanfare, but he's quickly become one of the most important players in this side, as you mentioned. Uh, last year, I think he was crucial in that victory in the final for Real Madrid against Atletico. And I'd expect him to start in this game. I think he has to start for this game um, for Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, so solid defensively. I think they need that that counterpoint in Casemiro, someone who can offer that defensive mindedness uh, in the, in the Los Blancos midfield. What I'm intrigued by is how uh, I'm intrigued by Jupp Henker's impact on this because obviously Bayern Munich had sort of uh, they had a sort of very patchy start to the season, which obviously saw Carlo Ancelotti got sacked. Henker's coming back now. Obviously, the squad was was discontent. It was it was. It wasn't United. He's come back and sort of revitalised this team. Obviously now on for the treble. I don't know. I, f I feel like uh, I feel like I want to side with Bayern Munich on this one. I know we spoke last week about how Real Madrid are sort of peaking at the right time, and we're seeing that with Ronaldo again this year. But to me, it feels like uh, Bayern Munich. I think they could have the better of Real Madrid in this time. Well, it's funny that you say that, and because I think. I I don't know. It's always difficult to look past Real Madrid in these things because even in the last leg, I, I think we all kind of felt like the 93rd minute Ronaldo penalty was a was an inevitable conclusion. You know, it's death, taxes, and Cristiano Ronaldo scoring and taking his shirt off. Right? These are the things that we will inevitably face be faced with in our life, um, as ridiculous as they may be. Um, but in that sense, I mean, I I, I I like the point that you're making about Yep Hanks. I mean. 
it's weird given everything that has been said about the Bundesliga over the past couple of years because I think in the media narrative that we have, you know, we're always looking for a competitor uh, for the Premier League and the Bundesliga to some extent, to, to some extent, sorry, um, especially in the United States has been marketed as, as a potential competitor. And this year the Bundesliga has kind of been a disappointment considering how easily you've, uh, Bayern Munich have walked the league and, um, you know, Within that, they've had their own managerial trouble, which was not often something that we see from a European giant. And I think in that sense, it's difficult for me to 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 value Bayern Munich or to see them going through because although Real Madrid have had this struggle and this public struggle in the league, that, that so much so that they may finish outside the top four. It's unlikely, but they may do it. Um, it it's just it seems like they've come back from that as opposed to where. Bayern Munich just kind of seem like they're walking over opposition that is already dead to some extent. Do you get what I'm saying there? Yeah. It feels like Bayern Munich, obviously last season, it was 6-3, was it on aggregate in the end? Yeah. I believe. Yeah. Obviously yeah, and it. Real Madrid do that. They always do that thing where like they have, they barely have the beating of the team, and then there's like an extra five minutes at the end of the game, and Marco Asensio yeah. in like five of them, and they just end up running away with it. <laughs> of course, Arturo Vidal got that red card as well, and it, it, it feels like you know th- there's different factors going into this game. Obviously, Bayern Munich are missing Manuel Neuer. Should we should we talk about as well? Just to mention this real quickly, Yop, under Japanks we have the the I guess reemergence of Javi Martinez as a as an actual midfielder. Obviously, mm. when he was there the first time, he was a midfielder that that. Um, really incredible partnership that he built with Bastian Schweinsteiger was something that I think a lot of people were starting to appreciate. And then they didn't have, uh, both him and Schweinsteiger didn't have the ability in terms of the next couple of years of consistency playing together to cement that as like something that we really remember. But he was moved back to defense uh, by Pep Guardiola. Bastian Schweinsteiger eventually moved on to Manchester United and now he's in the MLS, so we don't have that concrete image. But, you know, he's an exceptional midfielder. And if Arturo Vidal and, and Casemiro were not going to see that battle, I mean, the influence that I imagine he'll have is, is pretty large. Right? That's the thing. It feels like him sort of being in that midfield, it, it makes it feel more robust. You've got Boateng and Hummels behind them. And, and despite the, the absence of Manuel Neuer, it feels like this could be a team that could blunt Real Madrid's formidable attack i mean how do you see it working in in, in that sense i think it, the the thing and I, I don't know if it was you not to put you on the spot or anything <laughs> but um someone had complained about uh, the uh, <laughs> someone had complained about the format of these of these later champions league uh, matches that they didn't want it to be over two legs they they felt it kind of took the the excitement yeah, out i love that i love the two legs <laughs> i love right i love it so it wasn't you i'm glad it wasn't you because i think we'll agree <laughs> on that point it, it you know it it can really the second leg is like this amazing thing and so is the first leg because it's all so dependent on what happens and if they score and if they don't score in the first leg and I think that's the thing I like to point out this year about Real Madrid is that they won obviously heavily against uh, PSG in the first leg and so they were able to have that four two 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 as I mentioned and that is kind of Zidane's go to this season for some of the bigger occasions because you know Real Madrid and Ronaldo especially is devastating on the counterattack and when you can have hard-working midfielders in there that just need to sort of sit compact and press players at the right time and then you have a bunch of youngsters that are really talented like Kovacic and Asensio and, and Vasquez working alongside Benzema and Ronaldo I mean that's deadly 
So I think it, it kind of, you know, it's a, it's a mundane answer, but I think it's entirely dependent on what happens in the first leg. And if Real Madrid, if you allow a Real Madrid the ability to be defensive and come into the second leg and just kind of shut up shop, they will put up six against you in the last 15 minutes of the game because that's just what they do. Hmm. Who do you sort of favor in this first leg then? Of course, at the Allianz Arena, um, as we've been talking about, you know, Manuel Neuer and Arturo Vidal, potentially big misses uh, for Bayern Munich. Uh, although, as we've said, their sort of replacements have, have been solid. Uh, obviously, there's the, the James Rodriguez factor, Robert Lewandowski. Bayern have their own assets in attack. Yeah, there's, there's, I like you pointed out James Rodriguez there. There's a lot of, um, it's funny because you know I, I like to keep up with the the political sort of dynamics at Real Madrid, and there is there are a lot of probably more so they're more pissed off than he is, but there are a lot of Colombian and South American fans that did not like Zidane because he chose to play Isco and ultimately favored Isco um, over James Rodriguez, and that's why he has left the club because he felt like he hasn't gotten enough playing time and is is on loan from Real Madrid at Bayern Munich. So there's that narrative there. Is he, Will he try to, you know, overperform and and have this amazing performance to show Zidane that he was wrong in choosing another player over him? But I think in the first leg, I'm gonna favor Bayern Munich, um, just because you know they're at home. All of their kind of star players outside of the, you know, Neuer who you mentioned it, are healthy, and I, and I I just I see them winning in this first leg because I just see them as the the better side at home. But I think ultimately. I'll just leave it up in the air. Actually, I think I think uh, Byron will take the first leg. We'll see what happens. What about you? I think yeah. Despite the factors we've mentioned, I feel like Bayern are just going to be so robust and so solid. I think they're going to edge it in this first leg. I think at the burner power, it's going to be really interesting to see that second leg and and sort of see if Real Madrid can pull it through as as they seem to do in the last stages of these competitions in recent years. Um, but I just think something tells me that three Champions Leagues in a row is beyond even this Real Madrid team and Zidane Zidane. I feel like it would be a beautiful story as well. Jupenka's coming back, winning the Champions League again with Bayern Munich uh, before he leaves in the summer. So I feel like you know Bayern Munich might have the, the nous and just... I think they might have enough. So we'll see how this first leg goes. Uh, let's talk about the second game, of course, second semi-final. Liverpool against Roma, the first leg at Anfield, of course. Feels like Liverpool are massive favourites going into this one. Chris, is that a fair tag? Um, yeah, I, I, I can understand why that is, but I, I do wonder if, if some of that is defined by um, almost the PR, if you will. Not to say that Liverpool have orchestrated it as, as much as I think we discuss Liverpool a lot more because they seem a lot more relevant in the context of, of discussing European football. They're a lot more prominent um, because of the fact that Salah's been so fantastic this season. He's broken so many records. He's helped Liverpool elevate themselves to such a high level. The the clash with um, with Man City was talked about a lot as well, whereas really, I would say when you talk about resonance across the continent and maybe further afield, Roma have only really come into that discussion when they beat Barcelona in the second leg. Um Maybe briefly last summer with with Monchi, um, but I think that's that's the thing for me is that you'd be very naive to to what write Roma off on this one purely because I think the, there are teams here that that essentially stifle each other by doing the same thing, which could make for a very cagey first leg. Which is when you clog the attacking third for Liverpool, when you clog the attacking third for Roma, both teams tend to struggle. 
Um, there, there's been arguments that pace will, will kill Roma. Yeah, perhaps if you if you single out Fazio, but I don't think in general. Um, Daniele De Rossi's not the quickest. I think actually if you put high pressure on him, he, he tends to panic pretty badly. Um, but I think for me, in terms of you know doing the obvious predicting a winner and what have you, I'll have a much better sense of how that game's going to go once I find out how Di Francesco is going to play because. The three at the back only comes to prominence, only is even used by him for that second leg against Barcelona. He stayed up until five in the morning after the first leg, reworking things and trying to come up with a solution. So it's it's not something that necessarily I would say they have huge familiarity with. And so that could very easily force him to go sort of insular and decide to stick with the 4-3-3, which is a lot more familiar to this Roma team. How do you combat that? Front free, great podcast, Nico. Obviously, Mamatar on the form of his life, PFA, the newly ground PFA player of the year. You've got Sane, you've got Firmino. It is another formidable attack. Do you think Roma should approach it with a back free? How do they potentially negate the main strength of this Liverpool side? Well, as I'm writing right now, I'm kind of talking about the manner in which Manchester City were defeated by Liverpool in a piece. Um, and I think it's it's really it's as much about provoking Liverpool to make mistakes as it is not being provoked by their tactics. And in that sense, I think I've talked about this at a few a few times on on the podcast. So excuse me, listeners, if this is a little bit repetitive. But they do intentionally, so as Nathan Clark puts it, we've we've had many a discussion on this. Um, they kind of intentionally defend poorly because the consensus when it comes to managers is when you when you don't want to concede goals, which is you know a general thing that you don't want, um, <laughs> you should be compact. You should have a compact formation because the less space there is, the more difficult it is for the opposition to play through you, essentially. Um, and so what Liverpool do in a lot of these situations to create transition for their front three, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino, and Mohamed Salah, to have a lot of space to run into and isolate defenders is that they will intentionally decompact themselves in order to uh, give the appearance of space, which there actually is, in order for the opposition to try to play through it. Then they compress really quickly, they press the ball off of you, and then they exploit that space that previously was not there. Um, I think how you try to negate that is simply, and it's easier said than done, but not play into that. Liverpool did that beautifully against Manchester City because City do similar things. They, they, uh, or City to some extent, they like to keep the pitch compact because they can play really well in a tight space. They can play through you. They have the positional ability. They have all the movement to play, play in tight spaces. What they did was they purposely kind of funneled balls into the channel and then they compressed Manchester City really quickly. What Roma need to do if they want to be successful in this tie is not let their uh, defenders get isolated and not allow Liverpool to have a lot of space to run into. So it's get, it has to be somewhat of a cagey affair from Liverpool. I think if they do anything different, which I'm inclined to believe that they will, um, considering what I've seen of them this season, then it's just, it's just going to be a massacre because Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, they're, they're very, very good at these things. I mean, there was a couple of clips. I think NBC did like a feature on Mohamed Salah's best goals. And I mean, it is insane the amount of goals he scored this season. Um, that, you know, he, you know, he's reinventing the position of winger. To some extent he is, but he is also being put up on this platform by the tactics that Jurgen Klopp has employed um, to have as much space as, as, as possible and really thrive in these situations. So I think in order for Roma to be successful, they have to 
simply not allow space and just be a really frustrating team because then, as we've discovered before, the Burnleys of the world, the, the, the defensive teams of the world can cause them issues because their possession game when in tight space isn't actually that good. Oh, it's good. I'm really looking forward to this one. I think it's going to be fascinating. I think, yeah, if, if, if Roma can keep this one tight, you know, maybe even not concede... Going back to the uh, the Stadio Olimpico is going to be a fascinating second leg and see how that one works out as well. Uh, let's move on finally to talk about hmm, Arsene Wenger leaving Arsenal. Part three then, talking point three. Uh, on Friday, it was a very slow news day until about, what, 10am? And then Arsene Wenger decided to announce, well, Arsenal decided to announce that the Frenchman was leaving the club after 22 years in north london feels like it's it's long overdue in many ways um feels like it's the right decision both for wenger both for the club i mean how did you see this one chris because it was interesting to see after the news broke the 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 reporting and the developments throughout the day that you know there's a suggestion that wenger potentially jumped before he was pushed that you know, the club has clearly been putting in place the structure uh, with new hires in different football departments. There's the director of football, there's the Sven Mislintat coming in as well. It feels like Arsenal have been preparing for this. And although it is overdue, it feels like now is the time and it's the right decision for all involved. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I, I do also subscribe to the idea that he's probably been pushed before he jumped. Um or jumped before he was pushed, I should say, um, because I think it seemed a little bit left field. I, I do think what he said on, on Sunday as regards to the lack of unity or the lack of harmony among the supporter base has, has probably served as a, a way for him to rationalise or, or almost um, accept the, the, the situation as it stands, because I do think when it comes to, to top-level managers, there are a few who are kind of, as idealistic as him and, and that presents itself in a few different ways is loyalty to players that underperformed was, was really one of his downfalls. I think the way that he looked at his particular style and a lack of almost evolution, he, he very much clutched to his identity as a football manager, as the, as the tactical side of things presented itself at least. Um, and I think, that is, is probably one of the reasons that he hasn't won a, a Premier League title in, in a number of years because he essentially went from being the great innovator to someone who was the very opposite of that. And and it's a shame to say undeniably, and I think you can certainly have appreciation for what he achieved in the opening throws of his career with Arsenal, but also accept that it was the right time to to change. Do you think, Nico, um, I think obviously there's a tremendous amount of respect for Arsene Wenger and Chris touched on it there, how he, how he transformed and revolutionised the game in a tactical sense, in a nutritional sense. There's so many things he, he brought to the English game. Do you think, similar to what I was sort of referring to with Spurs, that is this Wenger's fault or was this you know, a situation that it was thrust upon him and those conditions made it incredibly difficult for him to succeed of course you know we know those early years of success the invincibles um etc incredible teams that he built all conquering but then of course uh, first he had to compete with 
Chelsea, the money flowing in from Abramovich, something that people had never seen before. Then Manchester City, all the while trying to keep Arsenal in Champions League, trying to keep them sustainable, uh, moving into the new stadium, etc. I think, you know, as Chris said, there are those accusations of stubbornness and idealism that have definitely exacerbated the, the, the direness that Arsenal find themselves in. But at the same time, you know, is it all Arsene Wenger's fault or has he just struggled to compete in, again in a market, in a situation where he's been outgunned and outspent, etc.? I think the answer lies somewhere in between those two things because I, I think to a certain extent he very much believed in his own ability to kind of bring the club out of the situation that he had put them in. Not that it was a particularly bad one because he had up until last year and, and now obviously he had made the club finish in the top four and that is something that we should always remember. I mean the level of consistency we have from him should be looked at, upon um, as something that is as great as or similar to the greatness that something maybe like Sir Alex achieved. It's not maybe the same thing because they have different levels of success, but you know, it is a really amazing thing. And we take that for granted to, to finish. And I'm sure, you know, this as a Spurs fan to finish that often um, and that consistently in the top four. And, and that was a major thing for Arsenal moving forward. I think by comparison, you know, you, you talked about the money there, Chelsea, Manchester city, and equally Manchester United, they've always, they've had money, they built that money, obviously, off the success that they had in the 2000s and the 90s and whatever. But right now, obviously, they've gone through a period of years where they don't have the same level of success that I think they would imagine they would have wanted to. And so they're they're sort of they're paving the road right now of staying in the top four with this this massive spending of cash, buying Paul Pogba, buying all these other players, and you don't have the same. Uh, the same policy of spending at Arsenal, and I think, I think Arsene Wenger was very much willing to go along with that idea because he wanted to believe that you could find gems, you could trust certain players, and we hear a lot about that. You, we hear a lot about the trust that he had for Jack Wilshere. We hear a lot about the trust that he had for Theo Walcott and Olivier Giroud and all these guys to perform, and to some extent they did. So I think the two ideas kind of went in tandem. This idea from the board that they didn't want to spend near as much money as the other clubs did, or at least not the same level of money as the other clubs did in the top four. And they felt like, and Arsene Wenger felt like he had the ability to take the squad that he was given and, uh, and, and perform with that. I think those two ideas went in tandem, but as far as it goes in terms of how he's being remembered, I think I like the response that a lot of people have had, especially the ones that have been vehemently detesting his extended reign, I guess you'll call it. I think we need to remember him for the revolutionary that he was and someone that I would like to see continue manage. I think it would be interesting to see what he does elsewhere under different circumstances and with a new group of players because we can't forget you know, how many of these guys he's been coaching for so long and that's kind of what I was alluding to there, you know, his mm. trust in certain players to perform for him. So I, I like the response that, that people have had for him in terms of respect. And I know some people have pointed out like, okay, Arsene Wenger was great in a time where the players got drunk the night before a game and players were doing drugs in some situations, I guess, uh, during games or whatever the case may be. But without the changes that he brought, that, you know, maybe somebody else would have brought them along. But he certainly, per he was like a, a, a you know, bringing these changes to the league and to the professional game on steroids. He changed these things, not necessarily overnight, but certainly very quickly for one particular club. And I think everybody else followed suit. And the fact that he was able to perform 
within the top four, within the top six for so long kind of doesn't just say that he was a revolutionary at one point in time. He is a great manager for 20 years. Did you say players were doing drugs during games there, Nico? I just had this isn't, vision of people I, I mean, like, I, okay, don't, and... don't quote me on this, but isn't, isn't there some story about how like Paul Merson was drunk during a game? Oh, drunk, yeah, yeah definitely. But, uh, yeah, doing so, drugs yeah that's, what, that's what I'm referring to. <laughs> Step me <up. laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I mean, you mentioned it there, Nico. What is next for Wenger? I think we'll come on to that. Um, firstly, what is next for Arsenal, uh, Chris? Because, you know, uh, it's interesting. I, I got some sympathy for Wenger because the reports were on Friday that he was close to leaving at the end of last season when he won the FA Cup. Perfect time to bow out again. Potentially, there was that opportunity there, but he didn't want to leave the club in the lurch. He felt like the situation, uh, the pieces weren't in place, essentially for the club to thrive once his successor had come in. Obviously, now those pieces are in place. We don't know how much of that is he's doing, how much is that is the club trying to prepare for his departure and modernise and not be so dependent on a sort of autocrat almost as a manager. But it does feel like the club is in a place now where they can move forward in an effective manner, where they can potentially go on to another level. And they are able to to compete and they have modernized i mean of course a lot of that depends on the manager who's coming in uh, there's a lot of names floating around i've seen julian nagelsman linked i've seen luis enrique linked i've seen Mikel arteta linked of course the former arsenal captain now assistant coach under guardiola are there any names out there who you feel would be able to come into arsenal and bring the necessary experience the necessary tactical nous that perhaps Wenger has been accused of lacking in recent seasons that could take them to the next level because as I said earlier it feels like the only way is up for Arsenal but only if they get this appointment right Genuinely there's no name that jumps out to me that's the difference um, I think all the names that you mentioned Yardim of Monaco could be quite interesting um, the Arteta Vieira thing sounds like it might be interesting uh, Vieira the sample size on him is really small. He's been very um, impressive from a tactical standpoint when it came to NYCFC. But when I look at kind of just things in general, it, that is a huge jump to make. Um, saying that, I know players of his that would say that that is a jump that he can absolutely make. Um, Arteta, I think personally, everything I read is, is that he's being groomed to replace Guardiola. Um, in fact, I had heard certain things to suggest that one of the reasons Vieira was moved to New York was because um, Arteta was was the prime candidate now rather than than him. Um, so yeah, I think I think you you are completely right in your assertion that um, they have to get this appointment right. I think personally that the the struggle comes that maybe the top coaches that you think about um, that when, say, Manchester United need a manager or even Man City, I don't know if they'd be appealed by that. Like, I see names like Allegri getting thrown around, and I just I don't see why he would want to go there, personally, at this point. But do, do, let me ask you this, and I, I was kind of thinking about, and I posed this question to both of you, um, I was kind of thinking about this earlier in terms of the, the managers that would possibly come in to replace him. I think for a long time people said Tuchel because the styles of football lined up relatively well. Um, and but he, for all intents and purposes, is supposed to be the next PSG manager, so he's kind of out of the equation. But in that sense, I mean, 
I feel like when these 20-year reigns come to an end, not that there are so many of them, but with Sir Alex, it was kind of like the only thing that the next person could do, unless they won the treble or unless you know, they, they did something magnificent, was go down for Manchester United. And obviously Moyes was not anywhere close to the best appointment. But at the same time, um, Arsenal are not in the same position. I think there is, uh, you know tangible space to improve for Arsenal and as Adam said I think at some point during the podcast the only way is up so I think in that sense there is a, uh, an attractive element to Arsenal given they are a, a, a club with good financial resources they are in the Premier League so there is a lot more money than really any other league and there is a pretty decent crop of players there so I think some of those managers will look at that and say possibly even Allegri and say there's something I can do there you know Oh yeah, Allegri may have just won. Uh, well, the club Juventus's seventh Serie A title in a row as well. You might think, ah, oh, you know, I need a new challenge. Um, as well, uh, I mentioned it there, Wenger. What does the future hold for Wenger? Uh, the the signs are, the talk is that you know he's not done uh, as a manager. Um, he's not done in football. Some suggestions, you know, that he could become the France national team manager. Chris, some suggestions he could move upstairs at Arsenal. Uh, which one do you see being more likely? It feels like, you know, he's still got something to give in management. Surely, you know, Arsene Wenger is someone who everything we heard about him is that, you know, he'd go crazy. He wouldn't know what to do with himself if he wasn't in football day in, day out. Could the national team manager be a nice sort of transition between what is everyday club management and if not retirement, then stepping back from the the intensity of the everyday game. Yeah, international management is, a, is an intriguing one. Personally, I would think maybe something higher up. I know he said he would never leave Arsenal fully. Um, now, whether that was more kind of a metaphor for, for them being in his heart, I'm not entirely sure. But I think um, the notion of him and what he's done for young players... Granted, not all of the the modern ones have have really achieved their potential, or or what have you. You look at like Jack Wilshere and people like that, and you know even Bellerin has very no, noticeable deficiencies to his game. But I think there's certainly something to be said for him as a youth producer, and whether that could be a benefit. Um, because I think, as I say, we talked about his ideals. I do wonder if <clears throat> if there's part of him that is too idealistic for for that top level management. Whereas if you put him in a situation where the aim is, is to grow and, and develop rather than the black and white um, poles of, of winning and losing that, that is a little bit more um, welcoming, I think to his skill set. Anything else you guys have got a burning desire to say about Wenger before I close it out? Um, I, I just wonder what out. you think as a Spurs fan, okay. given the fact that um, the oh, you want me to ask me that? Going? Yeah, just ask me that. And I'll okay. Riff on it. Yeah. Ready. Go for it. Yeah, I'm just wondering, sort of, finally, what you think about Wenger, Adam, as a Spurs fan. Uh, we have much, I think, under your guidance, uh, talked about the North London shift here on this podcast, huh. um, and and right now, you know, they are. I think 10 points ahead of Arsenal and will definitely finish above them and mm. secure another top four finish. I mean, as we're saying, it only goes up from here for Arsenal. They are a very marketable asset and there are plenty of managers that I think are willing and able to get this club back to where they want to be. Mm. I mean, does that worry you in any way, considering the comments that we talked about earlier with Pochettino possibly leaving? <laughs> it does worry me. I think 
as much admiration as I have for Arsene Wenger, I think in the last his stay has it's been overdue by what four years at least, um, if not more. It feels like I spoke know, to I spoke to an Arsenal fan that came into uh, came into where I was working, and I, mm. he had an Arsenal fan. Or he had an Arsenal, sorry, uh, jersey on, and I said, "Are you ex- or are you sad about the news?" He said, "No way, I've wanted him out since like 2006 or 2009." Oh, yeah. I was like, "Wow, you was have ten been years overdue." Long time. <laughs> I think it, it is bad news for for Spurs fans though, because of the those sort of the the downsides of Wenger's character, uh, the idealism, the stubbornness. They it has led to that stagnation at Arsenal where. They have just continued to to regress in a way, and I think you know we've seen that with Spurs now. Could have been finished by Arsenal for for two seasons in a row. That was barely imaginable for me as a Spurs fan five, six, seven years ago. So to have that happen in consecutive seasons is is fantastic. And you know, the longer Wenger stayed for me, uh, the better as a Spurs fan because it almost secured that superiority in North London. I think as we're talking here, the pieces are in place now for Arsenal to become a modern club. Like we saw at Manchester United, as you mentioned, Nico, when Sir Alex Ferguson left, there was that power vacuum. Ed Woodward had come into the role. He was inexperienced. David Moyes was inexperienced with a club of that level and they didn't really have the right infrastructure and the right setup to move on from their greatest ever manager. I think Arsenal have sort of learned the lessons from that in a sense. Um, and I think if they make the right appointment, it could be a very worrying time for Spurs because, as I said earlier... The, the only way is up for Arsenal. Chelsea, again, as I said, are going to bring in their new manager. All these clubs, these 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 elite clubs in the Premier League, that top six in that bracket, they're all in a place next season where they could move on a level, including Arsenal. And I think that's that's worrying for Spurs. It's something that we have said for the previous few seasons that you know Spurs are going to find it difficult to compete. Um, and they've always managed under Pochettino to finish in that top four in the last three seasons. Fingers crossed that happens this season again. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is, it's the right move for Arsenal. It's the right move for Wenger. And it's going to be very intriguing to see how it develops next season. With all that said, guys, that does bring an end to the Front Free Podcast this week. I hope you've enjoyed it uh, as much as we've enjoyed recording it. We're going to be back next week with some big news. Um, I'll keep that under our hats for now. But make sure you tune in to Monday's podcast. I think you're all going to enjoy it. I'll say that much. Uh, For now, though, Chris, until next week, where can the whole, where can the good listeners find you? In the hearts and minds of those who are willing for change. Beautiful. Uh, Nico, have you got anything quite so poetic? Uh, They can find me on Twitter at uh, Nico underscore Omoralis. I think that is as poetic as I need to be. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Until next week, enjoy the Champions League football, and we'll see you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
blanket, confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.